This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast, where we get a chance to meet Christians who are living out their faith with a life of success and flourishing. Today, we're speaking with Professor Nigel Bigger. Professor Bigger is Professor Emeritus of the Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford. He was the former director of the McDonald Centre for Theology, Ethics and Public Life. He is an ordained British Anglican priest and renowned theologian and world-renowned ethicist. He first obtained a Bachelor of Arts in Modern History at Oxford, added a Master of Arts in Religious Studies from the University of Chicago, studied at Regent College in British Columbia and completed a PhD in Christian Theology at the University of Chicago. Professor Bigger, delighted to have you join us. Uh, Thank you for fitting this into what must be a very busy schedule. Uh, Brendan, it's my pleasure to be with you. Glad to have this conversation. You're currently located in the UK? Yes, yes. Um, I'm speaking from my my home in uh, in, uh, just outside the centre of Oxford. Um, uh, where I've lived, I, I, I wasn't born here. I was born in Scotland, but uh, I've lived in Oxford three times in my life, and uh, lately since two thousand and seven. Most of the listeners will know Oxford only from British TV shows. Uh, <laughs> it, it it has an immense sense of of attraction and romance about the way it is. Is it as it is picturesque to live in as it is to watch on, <laughs> on some of those uh, crime shows? Well. Well, as you as you know, Brendan, uh, when you live in a place, you take it for granted, and I've, yeah. I've lived here so often, I take it for granted. But uh, I will report to you that I have uh, an American friend who spent several years here as a student, and whenever he comes back, he says this is a beautiful city, uh, and it is. It's it's a small city. It's only got a population of about one hundred seventy thousand people, but the, the heart of it, of course, is is medieval. Lots of medieval colleges and buildings. Um, and it's a very walkable city. I, 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 we do have a motor car, but uh, my wife and I, but I prefer to walk everywhere and I, I can do that. And in fact, from where I'm sitting right now on the uh, western side of the city centre, I can walk into open fields in, in five minutes and, and there's a canal five minutes away. I can, I can, if I plan this afternoon to take a five mile walk around into the countryside, it's just, it's just gorgeous. I'm, I'm glad that you're able to enjoy that delight and we can only imagine what it must be. Professor Bigger, you've you mentioned that you've spent most of your life at Oxford, which speaks to the fact that your your sense of call, your your life has been given to the pursuit of learning and of engaging deeply in thinking. What what attracted you to that life, that life of the academic, that life of the intellectual? Well, uh, like like most people, really, you you. You concentrate. You concentrate on what you think you're good at. So, so I, I throughout my school years, primary school and secondary education in the schools I, I was at, I was very successful, um, and I majored on that. I, although um, my father's family, my father's Scottish family, uh, has a tradition of providing members of the uh, Scottish national rugby team 
Uh, and at the age of 12, I was six foot two. But I was, I was never really, um, I think I, I rather disappointed my father by not becoming a rugby player. But I was never really uh, very interested in sports. Uh, I think my, my mother was a reader. And uh, uh, so early on, I, from a very early, early age, I, I devoured books. I still devour books. Uh, my father, by contrast, I don't think he ever read a book in his life. He, he, he read the the sports pages of the newspapers every day. So it's so partly my mother's influence uh, as a reader. We weren't a particularly conversationalist family. We didn't sit around the table debating things very much. But my, my school years were very encouraging, and I was very successful, um, at least until and, until my undergraduate career was a disaster, actually. But I, I persevered. I went to, to Regent College in Canada, as, as um, you alluded to earlier, and it was there that my, my academic career recovered. And uh, without having any strong sense of what my career should be, and I think most people after university, most people don't have much idea of what they're fitted for in life, but they, they, they just follow their noses, they push it open, they push doors to see if they'll open and they do. Uh, and I, I knew I, I had uh, abiding intellectual questions and I wanted to pursue them. My parents, although somewhat bemused, supported me. And one thing led to another. I ended up with a PhD and then I ended up with a job. Uh, and to make a very long story short, I got to where I uh, I am now. It's interesting to, to hear that you were conscious at an early age that there was a, an inclination to find learning both engaging and, and relatively easy. Did you make use of that at school? Was that something that you you found uh, engaged and, and and drew you into uh, the level of success, or was it something that just sort of happened without much thought while you're at secondary school, for example? No, I, th I think I've always yes, I, I've always been a bookish kind of person. I think partly, Brendan, my childhood, I, I was um, born up or up in a big house about two miles out of a very small market town in southwest Scotland. Uh, my, my, I had a brother, but he was six years older than I am. So whenever I was one place, he was another. I didn't really see very much of him. So I spent a lot of my childhood at home alone, not feeling lonely, but I, I, I learned to be solitary, and that, that did wonders for my imagination. Mm. Uh, and as I as I say, for you know, from an early age, I I remember reading books that now, in retrospect, astonish me that I was reading Graham Greene at the age of twelve. Uh, I'm not sure I appreciated him very much, but uh, there I was. Uh, my, my brother was also a, 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 a serious book reader. M both of us much more so than our parents, actually. Mm. So if that was if that was um, not foreign but not nurtured at home, who directed you to these pursuits? Who put a book in your hand such as that? Yeah, so both my brother and I went uh, away to boarding schools. Uh, I, I went away to prep school at the age of eight. And um, certainly the schools I went to, which neither of them were sort of front-rank, high-powered places, but they were good schools mm. uh, and serious schools. And um, I suppose in both those places, my intellectual and academic inclinations were were nurtured and encouraged I, I all my life um history has been my preferred interest in reading and there was a a, a schoolmaster in my prep school in Scotland um I remember his name Mr Cooper 
uh, who uh, he, he was a remarkable man. He had a, he had a handlebar moustache, uh, all white. I think he must have been in the Air Force in the war or something. And he always wore shorts, khaki shorts, no matter what time of year, shorts. Um, but he was he was he was really entertaining and fascinating about history. And I think that's certainly he was he was someone who really encouraged and inspired me to to read history. So there, there is often a, a character in our own stories that open a world of ideas and uh, imaginings to it. If if you had a teacher such as that, but there's a moment when it it transcends even that character, that inspirational character. When did you get captured by history? When was it the the features of learning the past and mapping meaning out of people's lives enthralled you? That's a very good question, Brendan. I think. Yeah, well, why why did history so fascinate me? It, it may have been partly. I mean, I, I live I live in an old country, mm. and I lived in the countryside. I out of my if I step out of my bedroom into the corridor, there was a window there just over the brow of another hill, about uh, three or four miles away. I could see the outlines of a ruined castle. Um, and I, you know, here I am at age sixty eight, describing to you what I saw at the age of of six. So clearly, it made mm. an impression. So mm. I was aware of living living in an old place with, with uh, and 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 vestiges of the past were around me, mm. and um, think about the past, Brendan, is it's different, unlike what the movie makers make it these days, because the movie makers these days don't like to give us a past that's different. They like to make the past reflect us, which is a great shame because what's interesting about the past is is the difference, uh, and I think that that that's always fascinated me. I, I want to come back to that notion of of the uh, the tendency of of our age to project its meaning and its its identity forward and backward that yeah. i think is part of what you were trying to convey in your in your book on colonialism but we'll, we'll come back and and revisit that sort of space for you or for, for many people who are at school history is learning dates learning a sequence of of events of history, but you must have very early realised that it was more than that, that it was a window into some some type of human experience. Yes, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I certainly look at my dates. I mean, I remember I can still recite them. Uh, boring though it was, actually, it did me the, the benefit of giving me some kind of framework in which to understand how on earth we got to where we got to. Uh, and I rather regret that school kids these days tend not to learn dates because they just don't know when things happened. Um, yes. But I learned my dates. And so um, I, I think um, certainly it, in my early years, um, history was presented to me as featuring really important people. Mm. And uh, that's that, that's an immediate way in which history can can grasp your attention because you're dealing with human beings and uh, fascinating human beings who do great and strange things. So I, to this day, I remember that Mr. Mr. Cooper, uh, way back in the 1960s, uh, um, uh, described Mary Queen of Scots as his puppet. He was clearly mm. very, very keen on Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> I'm not really sure she. I'm not sure she deserved that really, but um, but I still I still remember that. So it was the fascination with. With with uh, people in the past, 
Uh, and of course, I, I, I had my own family, uh, and I was born 10 years after World War II. Mm-hmm. And when I was sort of 15 uh, to 10 years old, um, 1945 seemed a century ago to me. Now, of course, it was a very short time indeed. And, and I was surrounded by uh, reminders and vestiges of mm-hmm. um, an enormously important part of history my own parents had taken part in. Mm-hmm. So that, that sense of of seeing the outworking of the narrative of the world, the, the narrative of the of humanity's shared experience of the war, was something that you were conscious of. Very much so, and uh, I think it it gave me an abiding sense that that you know what I have enjoyed and the environment I have enjoyed and the institutions I have enjoyed, they didn't fall out of heaven. Mm. <laughs> they were they were achieved. They were built, mm. and they cost people in the past. And so I've been all I've been sensitive to the fact that uh, my world is not eternal. Uh, it's contingent. It's dependent. It's fragile, and it may not be here forever. Mm. Um, and I think I, I think myself that's it's a very healthy view uh, view to have of of the present. Uh, I fear if 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 today's kids lack a sense of historical depth, they also lack a sense of the um, contingency and precariousness of what they have, and therefore a sense of gratitude, yeah. as well as humility. I, I think that's a I think that that's a very deep concept to to latch hold of. That the the world in which we operate, the social world, the constructs, the even the the economy that we are gaining benefit from, isn't self sustaining. It isn't self-perpetuating it's it's not self-evident in in lots of ways it is the product of human endeavor and and people's work and decisions uh, are what we what enriches our experience uh, every day yeah no I, I think that's right and i think it's it's important to be grateful and humble about that because it also makes one careful yeah you don't you don't take it you don't take it for granted no presumption. Yeah. I was thinking when I was um, reading some of your, your own history, your, your narrative and your story, that it was interesting to me that you had your undergraduate degree in history, but that you've ended up in this field of ethics and morality. What brought that change? What shifted it from the stories of, of people in their past to making sense of the why they were making decisions and the, the rightness of those decisions. Yeah, that's um, that's a crucial part of my story. Uh, I mean, the, the kind of intervening thing which we can talk about later is, is theology, because I I began my first degree in, in history and then subsequent degrees in theology. Although, I, as 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 you rightly point out, I focused on in ethics. But sticking to the question you've just asked about uh, from history to ethics, I, I grew up in in Britain. As I said, in in the late fifties and sixties, and the sixties in particular were throughout the Western world a time of um, cultural change, uh, of the beginnings of the throwing over of uh, conservative conventional morality, particularly sexual morality. And uh, I, I mean, I was aware of that. I was aware of that, and in Britain in the 60s and early 70s, I was at secondary school, 68 to 72. In my teens, 
uh, all sorts of of you know the, the the heroes of the past and the the conventions of the past were being mocked. Um, and I, I, you know, Monty Python came onto the scene and uh, other comedy programs where where younger people, as they do, uh, mock their fathers and their grandfathers. And I, I laughed with them. Except I, I do remember, I do remember, you know, one of the the the, the figures of mockery, I think, in, in a Monty Python sketch, was a, an RAF pilot, uh, uh, um, uh, a Second World War pilot. To, to our ears, you know, the way he spoke was terribly posh and odd uh, and and laughable. But I did reflect to myself, you know, this young pilot, no matter how he spoke, he took risks. Yeah. My security, my future. Yeah, uh, that that none of us uh, took or have ever needed to take. Yeah, and here we were. Here we were mocking him. So I've always, I've always had a um, a reservation about the the kind of the, the cultural mm. revolution of the sixties. Uh, and mm. I, I keep I, nowadays I refer to my my inner Edwardian, uh, which 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 maintains itself and uh, has always resisted. Uh, that so so I think moral questions uh, arose in my mind early on. In fact, I, the first letter I ever wrote and had published on a newspaper, at age of fifteen, was on that question. And so the, the, you, you rightly pointed out the point of connection or, or the the bridge between simple history. I shouldn't say simple history. That's not what I mean. But the the notions of an account of the past and making sense of it for you. That bridge was theology, that it was the bringing together of story and the things that are transcendent, the, the ideas and the values and principles that beyond the frames of the, the picture unfolding yeah. history. Yeah. So uh, I wasn't brought up in a, in a church going home, Brendan. My parents didn't go to church. Uh, my mother was the daughter of a was was the lapsed uh, Methodist daughter of a Methodist lay preacher. My father was a non-church-going Presbyterian. Uh, I once went to Sunday school at my local Presbyterian church and was bored and never went again. So my parents themselves did not communicate Christian faith to me, but I, I, I do remember experiences even before I got to my prep school where, where my headmaster mistress were evangelical Christians, there's one, one one particular experience of of a kind of uh, direct intuitive uh, religious sense uh, that I had. But when I went to my prep school, as I say, my my headmaster mistress were evangelical Christians. She used to read us Bible stories in the in the dormitory before lights out at night. And I went to Christian camps, um, age of eleven, twelve, and age of thirteen, at my uh, uh, secondary. School, I uh, responded to a, um, a a call to accept Christ, and was a Christian thereafter. Mm. I think, looking back, what was it? What was it? What was attractive about Christianity? I think, yes, uh, the 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 vision of a world where uh, there are important things that are not physical, that are spiritual, and that there are. Uh, moral anchors, moral, moral uh, spiritual anchors, principles that are not ephemeral. Uh, that seemed to me to be enormously attractive. And so the, there was a connection between between my faith and then 
I think I, I hadn't in my early twenties after my my history degree, I hadn't quite figured out just how ethically concerned I was, but I wanted to study theology just to understand better why I believe what I believed as a Christian. So I started off with theology, but but within a few years it had focused on on ethics, which in fact had been my driving concern for a long time, I think. Mm. So, so you became a Christian around 13. Uh, yes. You were discovering this this uh, penchants for the intellectual life and, and dealing with ideas. Many people struggle with a sense of contest between those two things, a, a life of faith versus a life of, of dealing with abstract ideas and propositions. And did you ever face that dilemma internally? Did you have to resolve that? Or Well, in a sense, I've, I've spent the whole of my life resolving it. In my case, and I think in most cases, uh, what draws you to faith and religion and God is deeper than simple thought. Mm. You know, the, 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 the deep existential spiritual needs and intuitions mm. are, what, are what draw you. But yes, uh, since since most people around me, including my family, were not Christian, uh, the question uh, to me, Nigel, why do you believe this stuff? Uh, mm. Came early, and in a sense, I I, I spent you know, I spent a lot of my life trying to figure out why I believe this stuff. That's why I wanted to study theology. I decided I do believe it, and I, I could give fragments of reasons why I believe it, but I wanted to be able to give a better account of why I believed it. And uh, the fact that I'm still a Christian means that I, I came to the view some long time ago that intellectual integrity and Christian faith need not be at odds with one another. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, to, you know, to be frank, Brendan, Believing in God raises all sorts of questions to which easy answers are not always to be found. But okay. my, response, my, my response to that is that <laughs> if you don't believe in God, that also raises questions to which easy answers are not to be found. So whether you're a theist or an atheist, both of us have large questions we can't answer. And so I, I don't feel any on, on any weaker ground than, than, a, than a, a non-believer on that. Mm. Can I push a little deeper into that proposition that, that you described of the reasons for our faith are they, they they do include the intellectual. They do include having a reasoned faith. Why do I believe what I believe? But you spoke about the there being something more existential or spiritual. Yeah, more, more existential. There, there is something that is in the that, that verse in scripture. There is you place eternity in the heart of of mankind. There's a proposition or there's a, a book that that's been recently done said that you are what you love, that there are these these inherent drives and and an, a capacity or an element of our humanity that that uh, is quintessentially about where we place value and where we place worth and and meaning that is beyond the cognition, the area of cognition. is is that sort of yep. what you're describing? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that that even before I was informed by my Bible reading headmistress at prep school, uh, I had, as it were, some independent experiences that were quite significant. I think uh, um, in the early sixties there was a 
a film released, a Hollywood film, a, a blockbuster called King of Kings, quite a famous film, actually, uh, uh, about the story of Jesus. And I went to see this at the age of six with my father. And I remember coming back home and lying in my bedroom, staring at the ceiling, praying that that God would, I was weeping, that God would take off Jesus all, what happened to Jesus and put it on me. <laughs> Which, look, looking back, is, is a slightly precocious thing for a six-year-old to be <laughs> saying. But but here, here's the thing, Brendan, I, I was praying. No mm. one taught me to pray. Mm. I don't think anyone taught me to pray. Uh, it, it came, it, I wanted to do it. I did it. Mm. And the other thing is, uh, clearly the story of Jesus had impressed me deeply. Mm. And the, the loneliness or solitariness of Jesus and what, what weighed him down impressed me deeply. And this wasn't something I was taught. Mm. I, I saw it. I saw it. My father didn't react that way. I did. So, so when I talk about, as it were, the, the kind of, um, the, the pre-intellectual or pre-cognitive springs of faith um that's the kind of experience i refer to and uh you know what what was driving me there well clearly clearly there's something there was something admirable beautiful mm. about the story of jesus i just seen um you spoke of love so i responded in love to what seemed mm. to me to be beautiful now the the story of jesus is is a tragic you know that well they before the resurrection, it's it's a tragic, terrible story of persecution and oppression. So it wasn't beautiful in a kind of saccharine sense. It was it was in a sense morally beautiful. Mm. Uh, and I've since then I I have observed uh, my heroes are all of that type. Uh, mm. Thomas Moore, Sir Thomas Moore, who was executed by Henry VIII. Um, Helmut James von Moltke, the um, anti-Nazi. Resistant, who was hanged for his pains in 1945, uh, um, the 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 solitary person who somehow stands out for, from the crowd uh, for the sake of what's right and true uh, has always been enormously attractive to me. I mean, uh, I say this advisedly, Brendan. God knows why. <laughs> yes, yes. But it is so. Yes. It is so. Yes. I, I appreciate what you're saying, and in, in the essence that. That the complexity of our of our human state involves those deeply emotive elements to us that that need to resonate with the things we understand, the things we don't understand about ourselves and about life. Yeah. Let, let's chat a little then around. You, you made a had a phrase there about the the beauty of the story of Christ and the the notion of somebody as the the single individual who stands against against all opposition and and all um uh, challenge for what is right that notion of what is right the focus of some of your your work ethics morality you have found that what is right defined by your christian faith how how do you see the sea of humanity wrestling with this idea about what is right and what is ethical and what is moral. Yeah, so um, as a Christian, I am bound by a Christian worldview, dogmatically, if you like, to suppose that there are universal moral principles. 
I, I tend to think of those in terms of of the basic components of human flourishing. Different people impact those differently. Uh, justice, experience of beauty, concern for the truth. We, we can elaborate on those. Um, but I, I, I do believe there are, there are universal moral principles. And I think empirically, I, I can support that, if you like, dogmatic belief. And so it doesn't surprise me that, that human beings from very different cultures and even very different times of history, parts of history, can find certain moral things in common. They have similar moral institutions. Not not exactly the same, because how we understand moral principles varies according to our cultural context, varies according to circumstance. Uh, so you could have, at ground level, if you like, a lot of moral variety or plurality, and still have, uh, at a basic fundamental level, a lot of a lot of agreement. So how do I see um, the, the sea of humanity? I think you know we're all, we all live in the same world. It is my view that there are certain moral fundamentals that all of us intuit, perceive, more or less. Now, as a Christian, I also think that uh, a moral perception is is limited because human beings are limited. Uh, sometimes we just make mistakes, mm. and doesn't, doesn't matter doesn't matter where you live in the world, you make mistakes, you get things wrong, just because your understanding is limited. And worse, uh, as as a Christian, I believe that we're sinners. So sometimes. Uh, sometimes uh, we deceive ourselves. Sometimes we avert our eyes from truths, and we, so we get things wrong. Not just because we're, we're ignorant, but because uh, we we're dishonest, and that that applies to the sea of humanity. So I think I think in that respect, I'm in the same boat as the rest of humanity. I do think, however, that, that certain traditions, and especially Christianity, uh, throw a sharp, illuminating illuminating light on moral truth. Uh, which makes unambiguous certain features of of the moral world that that, that everyone perceives more or less. And the the arguments that we've been exploring some of the ideas that this moment in time, this culture that we occupy, is the construct of human uh, interactions and 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 uh, human imaginings and ideas. Ideology drives things, and it's. The experiences we have, what we decide are the rules of engagement, so to speak, in our relationships, yeah. uh, constructed by by ourselves. The, the idea of that that being consistent, that being unchanging, there being a an enduring part of that. You've, as a historian, have seen the shift of what is acceptable, what is considered ethical, what is approved of as being moral, does yeah. that not does that not um, stand against the notion of a of a Christian continuity of good and evil? No, I don't, I don't think it does. So, so here, here's one example that's not. Well, it, it is a bit historical. In 2013, I went to Hong Kong to attend a conference on. Um, War and Peace, East and West, exploring Christian and, and Confucian or Chinese ethics of war. Now, what I discovered there was that, um, I mean, I, I, I had written a book on, on, uh, the Christian just war theory. And this is a, a theory of, of the justification of war, uh, that developed in the Latin Christian West, starting with, uh, uh, St. Augustine in the early 400s, 
systematized by Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s and then developed thereafter uh, articles about ancient Confucian and medieval Confucian ethics of war is that the ancient Chinese, the medieval Chinese, came up with ideas about what to constrain war or under what conditions war was justified, that in many respects were the, were the same oh. as the Christian just war theory, in spite of the fact that until the 19th century, thereabouts, um, Western civilization, Latin Western civilization, and Chinese civilization hardly communicated, oh. right? So that in, almost entirely independent of each other, uh, uh, these two traditions of, of ethics uh, came across many of the same things. Now, so so that's why I think there's, there's empirical reason to suppose that notwithstanding cultural and historical difference, that, that there are similar principles that, that recur. Now, you talked about, yes, historical development. So, for example, slavery, mm -hmm. uh, about, about which these days we talk a lot and we focus irrationally and for, for political reasons, I think, on Western European British involvement in slavery. But until the mid-1700s, slavery and slave trading were universal institutions practiced on every continent mm. by people of every skin color. Now, we now regard that slavery and slave trading as abhorrent. There was a moral revolution, I think, in England and Northwest Europe in the late 1700s, uh, pioneered not least by evangelical Christians that, that gave rise to the movement for the abolition of slavery. <clears throat> but uh, here's the point. Um, first of all, most people lived with slavery for centuries because it was, kind of, it was a fact of life. People could tell when slavery was being unnecessarily cruel in the way that we can tell. But for them, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, it, it wasn't so obviously immoral uh, as it is to us. Um, and, and in the late 1700s, there was something of a, a development uh, of, of moral intelligence or, or education, but it, it did happen. So that, that things that people had regarded as acceptable 50 years before, they can, came to regard as intolerable. And that does happen. And yet, you know, I think if we look back in history, we can see that people could still tell whether slavery was, was, was unnecessarily brutal, unnecessarily cruel. Um, and they could tell the difference between violence that was necessary and unnecessary. And the fact of the matter is that, that somehow, uh, if, if it were true that we're all locked into, as it were, our cultural silos where I have my, my culture as my view of slavery yeah. and your culture is slavery. If we were locked into those things, no culture would ever change. Yes. Because, because, um, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. Never the twain shall meet. What you claim is no no authority over me and vice versa. But people in a moral environment can begin to perceive something is wrong here. And, and I suspect that many people over many centuries had thought something is wrong here with, with slavery and mm -hmm. slave trading. But it, it seemed impossible to stop it. So uh, they, like all of us, when we are faced with impossible tasks, we put them aside. Yes. But uh, so, so the idea that something was wrong with slavery... Which came to, 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 uh, to, to which gave momentum in the late 1700s was probably that that wasn't the first time people have thought of that, mm. but but for, for a variety of reasons, 
uh, at that time, it was able to, as it were, gather momentum and then became a public fact. Yeah, I, under, I understand what, what you're um, describing, the account that you are uh, presenting there. And, and I guess where, where, my, where my thinking is heading is along the lines or leading to the question about your, your most recent book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. That that has um, drawn some criticism from folks about <laughs> defending what they see as an immoral practice, and and trying to figure in in your thinking, is it the morality that has changed? Is it the people that have changed? Is it the standards that have changed? Why why is it that you could write with an an unpacking, not necessarily approving, but at least sympathetic view of colonialism and others consider you're trying to defend the indefensible. If if European colonial endeavor was as my critics describe it, I would agree with them. It it, it would have been indefensible. Mm. It's just it's just that as a matter of fact, I know enough about it to know that the description commonly mm. given that British colonialism was nothing but a litany of racism and oppression and exploitation and yes. wanton violence. I just it's just 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 not true. Uh, so it's partly that, but it's also I find quite ugly, frankly, about the what I'll call the moralistic yes. judgmentalism of many people about our past, our colonial past. Is the is the lack of historical imagination, the mm. failure to understand that circumstances in the past were very, very different. Mm. And in particular, you know, those of us who live in uh, Australia or Britain or Canada or New Zealand or America now in the early 21st century, Western Europe, we enjoy, most of us, unprecedented levels of wealth, health and security. And we, we live in, we, we're fortunate to live in strong states, which being strong, uh, can be very discriminate in their use of violence. That I means even strong states authorize police to use firearms sometimes. Yes. Uh, of course, yes. in, in the US a lot, in my own country, not so much. But in the past, the thing about the past is states were usually very weak. Uh, life was generally insecure. Mm. That's why people, most people own firearms of their own mm. because they were, they were under threat. And when, you, when you're under constant threat, you're fearful, you're anxious, and you are much more likely to resort to violence in self-defense, and mm. appropriately so, because your circumstances are so insecure. So I think it's partly um, it, it's it's partly just my knowing the facts about the past and knowing that actually there were there were people in the past who used imperial power uh, uh, for good purposes. I mean, the mm. as I, as I said, the the abolition of slave trading and slavery by Britain was. Britain was amongst the first states in the world's history to, to do that. And then uh, the British Empire employed imperial power all over the world yes. to suppress slavery. I know about that. For some reason, my critics don't want to know about it. Yes. They could do, but they don't want to know about it. But the, the other thing is just, just realizing when we judge the past, our ancestors lived in very different circumstances. That we, if we're humble enough and sensitive enough, we need to take that into account before we judge them. Yes, I, I hear what you're saying. That's it's it's exactly the uh, tracing back to the comment that I noted in a, an earlier uh, phrase that you used. That you know we 
the the modern world or the modern age tends to project itself into other stories and has a, a an absolute self-absorption with its its self-definition and its sense of priority so as to completely overshadow or outweigh any other perspective, any other time, any other context. Yeah, can I give you an example? Yes. Uh, there was a film that came out, I think, about a year ago called Bronte, and this was about uh, the Victorian novelist Emily Bronte, who uh, was the author of the famous Victorian novel uh, Wuthering Heights. Now, Wuthering Heights is a story of of grand uh, sexual passion. Now, the filmmaker, the 21st century filmmaker, decided Emily Bronte could not possibly have written such a novel unless she herself had had living experience of mm. wild sexual passion. Mm. So, so the, the 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 film, as it were, uh, purports to to reveal the truth the truth about Emily's own personal experience. Uh, which is what led her to write this this um, this book. Well, the truth about Emily Bronte, as far as we know, is she remained unmarried to the end of her life. She never had any sexual affairs. Uh, she was stuck up in the in the moors of, of Yorkshire, uh, and yet she wrote this book. Now, mm. to me, that's really interesting. Mm. Uh, it's interesting because it calls into question our present assumptions that yeah. uh, uh, people can only write about their own lived experience, yeah. and that you know any <laughs> that any uh, successful human being has to have had some uh, um, wild sexual fling. Um, but the the twenty first century filmmaker just could not could not yes. cope with that, yes. and so and so allowed the twenty first century viewer. To see a reflection of themselves in the film, yes. which, which, to my mind, is is boring. I'm, I, yes. I I know us. <laughs> I, yes. I don't need to see us again. Tell me something different, which might make make me reflect on us critically and might illuminate yes. us in some way. Which, in but, the, you're, but you're right. It, it's a kind of narcissistic yes uh, session, which I find tedious myself. Exactly. I I hear what you're saying. It's almost it's almost like the We've been talking about moralities in terms of judging right and wrong, but it's 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 a more complex concept than that, isn't it? Because in in this in this space, we're imagining um, or an, an inability to imagine the morality of today is so individual and so self-expressive that it that morality is the thing that pervades and permeates every interpretation. Of everything else, yes, it is yes. only about our age and our concept and and our experience with absolute self-absorption, which is part of yes, the uh, our ideology. Yes, and it's it's self-confirmation. So it, mm. it's it's proving that that uh, um, uh, our here's the irony: it's proving that, that our morality is universal. It was always the case, and, and I just I just think that is um, it, it, it's just so thoughtless and it's so. Um, it's so dishonest and it's so lazy. Yeah, lazy um, is a good word for it. And oversimplified, isn't it? It's so un-nuanced and yeah. unsophisticated. Yeah. No, what's what's interesting about the past is it really was different. Um, yes. And we need to contemplate that. Yeah. 
you started with that. Before we sort of draw things to a close, I, I did wonder whether or not you had any reflections on why the strident opposition to the colonial past seems to be so concentrated on British colonialism and and little mention of of other eras or other other um, colonial enterprises that preceded it. Is it because it's the most recent? Is it because it was the most successful? Or is it is it none of those? Uh, very important question, Brendan, and you're quite right. And, and no one cares about uh, the ancient empires of Mesopotamia or Rome or Greece. Mm. No one cares about more recent Arab empires or the Zulu empire mm. or the Comanche empire or even the present Chinese empire. The focus is all on European and especially the British Empire. So that raises the question, why? I think there are two reasons. Um, one is the the assault on British colonialism is the kind of British or Commonwealth equivalent of the assault on race in America. Mm. And I, I, th- I think a lot of the, the obsession with racism and colonialism is something that um, we in the Anglosphere have imported from America because of America's a dominant cultural influence uh, of which you're aware and I'm aware. And it, it certainly, I think I can back that up with reference to the the chronology in 2020 uh, when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. Yes. I think it was yes. in October 2020, was it December? The Black Lives Matter movement experienced a resurgence in America. And in no time at all, it appeared in Britain. Mm. It, it appeared in Britain and... Uh, you, you have you have placard. You, uh, I have a m- memory of a an English woman holding a placard in a BLM protest here in England, and the placard bore the words "Disarm the police." <laughs> the, the oddity being that, as most people know, the British police are not normally armed. Yes, but this 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 lady had not noticed that Britain is not America. Uh, but so, so I think we 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 quickly imported uh, this this Black Lives Matter notion that America is is radically racist because of of slavery, and then in Britain, Britain is radically racist because of slavery, and yes, because mm-hmm. because of our colonial history, which is all about slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one reason. The second reason is I think, um, and it's a broader reason that uh, I think British the British Empire. Is it stands as a proxy for the West? Mm. Uh, there's a, an historical reason for that, in, in that up until the end of the First World War, thereabouts, or the 1930s, Britain was the leading power, or the British Empire was the leading power in the Western world until it was overtaken by the US. Uh, and then, to some extent, US dominance since 1945 was built uh, on on the British Empire. I mean, some some of the US military bases were. British imperial bases. Um, and so the British Empire stands really uh, for the the modern record of the West. And yeah. therefore, the attack on the empire is an attack on, on the record of the Western world. Yes. And the claim is yes. the Western world is radically racist yes. uh, and yes. oppressive. And I think particularly at a time when the likes of uh, Vladimir Putin in Ukraine and President Xi rattling his saber over Taiwan and threatening Southeast Asia. Um, it's a bad time to be denigrating the West. 
Uh, yes. I'm not saying that the West doesn't deserve criticism, Brendan. Yes. Of course, there are lots of things to be critical about the West. Uh, but to to denigrate it indiscriminately in the way in which the decolonizers do is a politically dangerous thing to do at this time. Yes. So be, beware the oversimplification either way, to, to completely exonerate the past or to completely repudiate the past. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's, 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 let's have the whole story, uh, uh, warts, but, but also the good bits. Mm, yeah, uh, very in the case of the British Empire, by all means, let's remind ourselves of slavery between 1650 and 1800. Uh, let's also remind ourselves of the uh, 150 years of imperial penance in stamping out slavery from Brazil uh, to Malaysia. Mm, very good. I'm thoughtful as we draw our conversation to a close, Professor, of of um, the teaching of Christ himself that talked about logs and moats and the willingness <laughs> to, to point fault at the, at the cultures of the past and be completely ignorant to the, the massive problems that we might be facing in our own our own culture. Um can I thank you for the work that you've done in, in helping point out some of those logs and moats? Uh, and may, <laughs> may you continue to do that in uh, as we reflect on where we've come from and the story that has brought us to this place so that we can learn from it and uh, allow the light of the Lord to illuminate our way forward. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks very much for this conversation. These are really important matters and it's great to have a chance to have an honest and open conversation about them. Thank you. God bless. You too.